this is Big Talk. Michael Glab here. My guest this week in the studio, Fox Booker. He's with Black Lives Matter here in Bloomington. Exactly how are you with Black Lives Matter, Vox? Michael, thank you for having me today. I am a co-council member of Black Lives Matter, and I serve in the capacity as spokesperson as well for most media events. So there's a different kind of hierarchical setup, or should I say no hierarchical setup at all, with Black Lives Matter. That's right. We opted as a leadership structure instead of uh, sticking with kind of the Eurocentric model of having a president, a vice president, or some type of chair, that we would we'd go back to our roots, go back to the more tribal tradition of having a, a council of leaders. How does one become part of Black Lives Matter? Is there a, a membership card? Does anybody pay dues? I mean, is it that kind of formal thing, or is it something other? There's an agreement that you sign that that isn't legally binding, but it it kind of goes that you will understand that it's a black-led space and uh-huh. that you can respect that. We talk about honoring uh, ourselves and our allies and our mission. So really joining Black Lives Matter is, is as simple as going to one of the meetings, one of the call-out meetings, uh, or messaging the, the Facebook page uh, or shooting an email to the Black Lives Matter. And so how long have you been involved? It's a complicated story. So I joined Black Lives Matter about two years ago, and it was simply a Facebook group here in Bloomington. Mm -hmm. And after being in the group for uh, a little while, I noticed that there didn't seem to be any black people. What? (laughs) So I uh, I posted a, a comment is there any black leadership in this? And uh, the moderator at the time uh, responded that they didn't have any black leadership, but they had asked in the past if they could get some black leaders. I said, well, I would be willing to take the position, uh, but I would like for you to ask someone else first or or make a post asking for some type of leadership. Uh, And if no one else steps up, then I'll take that duty. Do you consider Bloomington a diverse community? No, I would like to say yes, but in, in truth, we, we have less than, than 5% black population. Yeah. Uh, most of the diversity that we have comes from the university. I'm born in Columbus, so you know when we talk about diversity, Columbus is a much more diverse city, Columbus, Indiana. Uh-huh. Uh, the city has progressed in a lot of ways for that diversity. I would like to see Bloomington move in that direction. So you've been around these parts. Uh, As you say, you were born in Columbus, Mm -hmm. Indiana. I also uh, noticed that there's some Seymour involved. Uh, How did that come about? My family has been in Seymour for about 160 years. It's given me uh, a large base in Indiana to kind of consider home, this whole Bloomington area, Columbus, Seymour. It's all kind of home to me. Are you very familiar with your family history that far back. Absolutely. As I understand it, I had a great-great-grandfather who fought in the Civil War. He had came from Louisiana. After he finished the Civil War, he went to Oberlin College in Ohio. Oberlin College? Yeah, it was uh, one of the the first colleges that uh, educated Negroes. And from there, he met that grandmother. Uh, They moved to Seymour, Indiana, and our family is still there. He was a freed man, I, I assume. Is that what you would call him? So he was born free from Louisiana. Uh, they had a three-tiered society uh-huh. where you had, you had whites, you had landowning free blacks, and you had slaves. Uh-huh. He was a, a light-skinned Creole guy 
who fit into that middle caste. Boy, how'd you find all this out? We, uh, we care about our family, so we, we take the time to preserve the history. I cannot tell you about my family uh, beyond uh, there's my parents' generation, then my grandparents, and that's it. Forget it. Uh, so that's, boy, you've got history. I do have history. So Black Lives Matter, you're now involved in it. Are there more black people involved? There are more black people involved. Is that thanks to you? I don't know if it's thanks to me. I think it's uh, it's thanks to people caring in the community. I reached out uh, in the beginning when Black Lives Matter became more than just a Facebook to call council member Jada B. Uh, she was instrumental. She had already been a community activist, mm-hmm. so she was instrumental in helping uh, start the foundation of what Black Lives Matter is today. When you hear people say all lives matter, what is what do you hear when you hear that? I hear that all lives should have inherent worth and value. Yeah. Uh, the issue is that every life isn't treated that way. And right. as long as we have folks that are disproportionately affected by state violence, socioeconomic injustice, racism, that we must, we must highlight those folks and, and shine a light on what's wrong to be able to fix it. You know, we have to kind of... My grandmother would say that you have to, to name a demon to cast it out. And saying Black Lives Matter is, is doing that. Family, culture, the tribe yeah. means a lot to you. Absolutely. And, and I realized that for you to sit here and say that I as a black man know more about my history than you as a white man is powerful. And it's not something that, that every black person has. So uh-huh. I value that. I treasure that. Speaking of history, you arrived in Seymour, went to Seymour High School. Then as an adult, you got here eventually to Bloomington. What brought you here? Well, there was a lot that happened there. Uh, Uh I was happy at home in Columbus. Uh, Three days before my 16th birthday, my mother passed away of cancer. Oh. Uh, It's all right. It's been a long time. Yeah. Uh, She was a very strong, powerful woman, and she made sure that no one ever killed the fire in her child. So I'm here today because of who I want to recognize that. It's always important that we recognize black women. Uh, from there, I moved to Seymour uh, with my, my grandmother was there. My father worked a lot. Uh, so that kind of created more stability for me. Uh, my father moved as well. I attended Seymour High School for, from my sophomore year to my senior year of high school. Did a lot of fun things. I was in marching band somewhat. Uh, I also did competitive speech uh, and just enjoyed small-town life. There's been a couple of brushes with police. We'll go into it. When you were a kid in Columbus, when you were a teenager in Seymour, what did you think of the police? My life has been, uh, in a lot of ways, defined by police interaction. As a child, uh, there was a point where uh, I had been accused of striking a teacher that was an older lady who had, had said some things to me that were uh, racist. I'm sure she's passed away by now, so I won't rehash any of that. Yeah. But I, w- I was taken as a small boy. Uh, I was shackled. And when I'm, I say shackled, I, I feel I mean like a slave. Uh, I was put in handcuffs. Wow. Uh, and this is me as a nine-year-old who... You're nine! I'm, I'm nine. I maybe weigh 80 pounds. So they shackled my, my hands, they uh, shackled my ankles, and then they put a chain uh, going between uh, the two. You're kidding! Yeah. And so they, uh, they threw me into a juvenile detention center, 
And luckily, uh, I had parents who had the financial capacity, the the uh, willingness to invest the time in a community uh, a strong, with a strong black church, a strong NAACP yeah. that came to my aid and rescued me from something that so many black men in our society aren't saved from. Yeah, it's the new slavery. Yeah, it's the same old slavery. What did your parents do for a living? My mother, uh, when I was born, she taught at the Atterbury Job Corps Center. Ah. Uh, she left that. She uh, was ill for a while. She also uh, raised me. My father had done construction most of my life. He was a union guy. It uh, allowed us to have a, a stable, middle-class lifestyle. You are active. I try to be. Active in the real sense of the word, uh, when there is what you consider to be an injustice or a wrong, you're going to raise your voice. As you did, you protested when that teacher, well, she called you names or said something mm -hmm. rotten. Yeah, she struck me. She struck you, mm -hmm. too. You're not going to let that slide. Why not? No, we, we have to lift our voice. My family has been here too long and has been too strong for me to be anything less. Uh, when I talk about these folks who settled southern Indiana during the age of the Klan and who were college educated, who built a church that's still there today, who created a community, they've suffered things that I can't imagine. My father was born into a time where he couldn't vote, where uh, there were still basically signs for colored. Uh, and who would I be today to, to not speak against that injustice? So I feel, I feel a deep sense of connection to, to that time and to this time, and I see how those struggles align. Vox, let me ask you this. Vox itself. Yes. You know, all you have to do is Google Vox, V-A-U-H-X-X, and what comes up is Vox Booker. There aren't many Voxes. How, how does that come about? Oh, thank you for spelling that. I'm sure I'm going to get some hate mail. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> The story of my name is the story of my identity. My father was in Vietnam. Like a lot of uh, black men, he, he fought in, in that battle for a nation that still didn't really recognize his full rights. Uh, and he, at the end, he was in the Navy. He saw a lot of families be separated. That affected him. My father's a, a sometimes stoic, but a, a very caring man. Mm -hmm. uh, and he said he wanted to make sure that his children were, if we were able to separate it, we would have unique names that we would always be able to find each other. He, so he chose uh, Vox, which is the, the Latin for voice. Yeah. And then he uh, just adapted the spelling. My parents were Michael and Annie, so my mother said that she was absolutely not going to name her child Vox. <laughs> uh, but uh, he won out. You know, He told everybody I was a uh, baby Vox and... Folks always asked about Baby Vox, and my mom said that she felt wrong to name anything else. How many siblings? I have two half-siblings and a step-sibling. I'm my mother's only child. We mentioned things about the police. This year alone, 2018, there have been some news stories dealing with that kind of thing. Let's go back to February of 2018, Mayor John Hamilton is to give his State of the City speech at the Buzzkirk Chumley Theater. This is uh, soon after the news broke that the city was going to buy from the Lenco Company 
uh, something called a Bearcat. Turns out to be an armored vehicle. It's pretty much illustrative of the militarization of the police. What were your thoughts when you found out about that purchase? It's hard in my mind to reconcile when you, when you take out the, the Linko Bearcat, which is a vehicle that's been deployed in, in Syria, Yeah, uh, how that vehicle can serve a purpose in small city, Bloomington, Indiana. So as a black person, my mind instantly kind of went to some of the atrocities that we had seen associated with the Bearcat. We can talk about Standing Rock. We uh. can talk about Ferguson. Uh, and all these scenarios, folks that weren't even familiar with what a bear cat was, had seen these images of tear gas being launched, uh, of water uh, cannons being used against uh, native folks in uh, almost freezing conditions. So there's a, there's a deep trauma that uh, is associated with this vehicle. The mayor is giving his state of the city speech. You were there. Somehow you got a hold of a megaphone. Did you bring that in? Someone else brought the megaphone. Someone brought the megaphone in. You disrupted the speech. Actually, as people were going into the theater, there were volunteers out front handing out flyers that read, just say no to militarized policing. So people had to know something was cooking. Oh, yeah. You stood up in the middle of the speech and announced, we don't want a war machine in our streets. I'm not sure if I said that quote, but that, w that was something along the lines that I and the, and the group felt was that we didn't need that type, of to that type of militarization in our city. We still don't. The, the disruption of the state of the city uh, is a complicated thing. A lot of folks felt like we hadn't reached out to the administration in advance. We yeah. had. Uh, Mayor John Hamilton and I were already Facebook friends. So yeah. even when we created the event, uh, I had invited him to it. So he knew it was happening. He wasn't yeah. blindsided. Uh, at any time, he could have reached out to me. Some folks said we should have let the mayor finish his speech. Uh, we already knew what the speech was going to be. I think it was the Herald Times that had already provided us a copy of the speech. In right. He handed out uh, copies yeah. of the so speech. Sure. I, I knew what he was going to say. I knew that it wasn't going to be anything uh, substantial or in-depth. The only way that we were going to, to get the engagement that we needed was to say we're not going to allow the status quo to continue life as normal unless you address this issue. What did you imagine to be a successful outcome of this disruption? How I would have qualified success was finding out that I had a leader who would have stopped what he was doing, who would have sat down and spoke and engaged in dialogue and had a heart-to-heart -heart with the people and let him, let him express and let the community understand that he cared, that uh, he heard all the, the fear in our voice and that he, he was empathetic to that. Uh, we didn't receive that. Yeah. Um, but what was successful was that it drew media attention and the community began to engage in dialogue. A white mayor, a white police chief, all but one of the city council white. Yes. How could they be so tone deaf in advance of how this would play out among black people? Can you imagine? I can't imagine. I know now that, that the city council hadn't been put in the loops. They didn't know that the, the Bearcat was being purchased. Yeah. But how it appeared at the time, and we still didn't know that, was a total disregard for the the 
the mayor to almost act unilaterally to, to purchase such a volatile vehicle and bring it to a community. Now, at some point in the proceedings, a local attorney and a political candidate, Al Manns, he stood up, tried to quiet the crowd, tried to chill everybody out. And then at some point he said, in some countries, and I don't know if he was addressing you directly or in general, in some countries you would have been shot for doing this. Uh, do you recall that? Yeah. How did that make you feel? It made me feel like he had forgot that some of those countries are America. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, my grandfather was shot uh, by some racist white men uh, at almost point break range uh, with a shotgun in, it was the 60s. I know that there was a cost and a, a price to be paid always when you speak out for justice. Uh, a lot of folks don't know I was, I was in the uh, process of taking a job as a police dispatcher with IUPD. I at knew, that time. At that time. Yeah. So I knew that, that taking such a public stance against uh, Bloomington PD and against the mayor would cost me a job that I had worked hard to get and was looking forward to. And it did cost you that job. Was it worth it? Yes. Why? There's always a price to be paid, but at the same time, there's, there's always something to be gained. Uh, it's been said that uh, if you don't speak out against your oppression, that folks will uh, kill you and say you enjoyed it. Everything inside me from, from that name, Vox, yeah. uh, spoke to me and said that I had to speak up. I, I come from a people that have, have come too far and, and, and suffered too much for me to remain quiet. Vox the voice. It is. You know, a funny thing to talk about that. I, was, yeah. I actually had a profound speech impediment. So I did uh, speech therapy uh, from uh, kindergarten throughout my senior year of high school. So to be the irony of just being a child whose name voice and uh, not being able to adequately use mine has cemented the importance of my voice and the power. And I will always lift it for, for causes that I find just. Did that make you shy as a kid? I'm a little reserved. I'm, yeah. not, I'm much, not much on public spectacle. Even though I'm private, I, I try to act boldly. Uh, one of my, my favorite quotes is from Virgil, uh, Fortune Fables the Bold. Yes. And I try to, to move in that way. Did you study Latin? No, my name is Latin, though. So my, yes. I have a father who, who was quite <laughs> up on Latin. Was he really? Yes. <laughs> and speaking of public spectacles, let's jump ahead to April 11th, 2018. There's a city council meeting. The Bearcats not on the agenda. They're talking about the IU Health Bloomington Hospital, uh, what we're going to do when uh, the hospital moves to its new campus. And nevertheless, you began uh, speaking about the Bearcat. You were ejected from that meeting. You were escorted out of uh, council chambers by a white police officer. What's going through your mind when a white police officer is escorting you out of a public place? Councilmember Rolo was leading the council of the whole, so I, I knew that uh, he would eject me. I knew that we were talking about this this purchase to the city that was worth millions of dollars in the interest of IU and the interest of the mayoral administration. You're so, talking about the purchase of the old hospital, yes. what will be the old hospital yeah. site. So yes. I knew that uh, my, my uh, black voice and, and potentially even my black life would not be worth that millions of dollars that were on the line with this meeting. So what went through my mind was 
the safety of the people I was with. I could have stood my ground. I could have had them physically uh, remove me. Uh, I could have been arrested. But the question was really, how would the audience react? How would the supporters uh. react? Would they, uh, in concern for me or out outrage, would they have acted out? Would anyone else have been hurt? As an activist, you know, what we're doing is simply that we, we, we care about human life. And so in that moment, it was important that I comply. I did tell the officer not to touch me. He didn't touch me. Uh, and I, and I'm, I'm a, a guy that will, will talk. I communicate. My name is Voice. I will, and, and so I said I will leave willingly. I walked out with the police officer, and the group followed me out as well. So then we jump ahead another couple of months, and an incident happens that you hadn't planned, that you hadn't even foreseen in any way. You go to the Bloomington Transit Central Facility over at 3rd Street and Walnut. You buy your monthly pass? It was my first time buying myself a bus pass, but I've been... For personal yeah. use, yeah. I've been utilizing public transportation a lot, so it made sense at that point to get a bus pass. You pay for it. You leave the window. You leave the building. You're walking down the street. And next thing you know, you hear some shouting. I did hear some shouting. So, so to do a quick recap... Uh, for those that don't know, uh, the video has been viewed over 20,000 times. So for those in the community that, that don't know, uh, the Transit Authority uh, attendant had chased me about a half block down. I thought she was saying that I had forgotten my debit card or something, but that's not what happened. She uh, accused me of having stolen a bus pass. Uh, once again, my least favorite thing, public spectacle, broke out. Uh, at some point, I decided I should start recording the incident. Yeah. Uh, she adamantly demanded that I let whole copy my debit card. No one in the right mind is going to do that. Uh, I pulled out my phone. It's 2018. I show my bank account. I show right. that it, it, the transaction went through. Uh, in the video, you can see the, the lady who I would like to not be named remains kind of belligerent. Uh, to me, there's no point in that whole body language indicates that she's afraid. It seems very much a power play. And and it stayed very much that way until the police entered the building. And the only time that she seemed to, to change her mannerism is when I went to introduce myself to the police. And they said, Mr. Booker, we know who you are. Yeah. And she thought maybe she had picked the wrong guy. I think we've seen these type of situations play out all over the nation where you have black people who are breathing and there uh, is some white fo person who uh, finds that offensive. What are you doing in this Starbucks? What are you doing in this uh, college student union? And calling the cops. And calling the cops has got to be scary for a black person. You know, white folks love to talk about Dr. King. He's dead. He's kind of yeah. been whitewashed, yeah. uh, sanitized. But to be a black child, even when we're taught black history in the school, what we're doing is really rehashing the history of our oppression and, the, and, and our communal trauma, where folks often remember Dr. King in the I Have a Dream speech. Uh, uh, a lot of black folks will remember Dr. King locked in you know, the Birmingham jail and people like Congressman John Lewis having those skulls fractured. Policing in America is, is a history of racial oppression. Which makes me wonder, a 
under what circumstances today would you call the police? You know, so I live in the community. I, I think about this often. And one of the one of the things that Black Lives Matter uh, is doing right now is we're beginning to uh, launch a campaign called Make the Right Call, which is uh, divesting from uh using 911. We have uh-huh. a lot of community resources at our disposal and we're making uh, an awareness campaign so folks know those those other numbers that they can call instead of 911 because we honestly expect too much from the police officers in our nation. They can't be social workers. They're not trained to be social workers. In the circumstances that I would call the police, it would have to be uh, imminent danger. I mean, it, it's an emergency line, 911. What's your emergency? Physical danger? Yeah, it needs to be a physical danger. Um, but if it's my neighbor is being loud at 11 p.m., I'm not calling the police. And, and white folks especially need to be cognizant that when they call the police on black people, they are potentially taking the fate of that black person's life in their hands. You know, not long ago, the police officer who shot to death Laquan McDonald in Chicago, was found guilty of second-degree murder. Did you follow that case at all? I did. I I have to say that I I have some fatigue like most black folks. There's so many, that case, we could could talk about Aaron Davis in in, in Indianapolis. We could talk about Sandra Bland. There's so many many cases, and those things are always kind of like a wound, and and, and following each case is kind of like rubbing salt in that wound. Yeah. So when these things happen, how do you stop yourself from becoming a raving madman in rage? Oh, because I don't have the luxury to do that. I have to be aware of my positionality, that I'm a black man, that the media will always love to, to portray me as the angry guy, the unreasonable guy. Uh, we saw that a lot with the uh, uh, events surrounding Black Lives Matter. I need to to maintain calm. Uh, when we look at these cases, we often see that police officers aren't convicted because juries say, hey, this officer was in a, a tense moment. That could be life or death. Yeah. How could we expect him to remain calm? Right. But at the same time, there's a juxtaposition of saying, well, the black person who was shot should have remained calm and complied while they had a gun pointed at them. Yeah, yeah. Are you proud to be an American? Uh Am I (laughs) proud to be an American? Yes. Uh, America is is the the great experiment, and it's an experiment that is still unfinished. Yeah. We have the, the capacity today to influence that. We saw folks mobilize in masses here in the county, uh, breaking records. I'm proud of what America has the capacity to be. Uh, I'm cognizant of the history of the oppression, of the nationalism, of the manifest destiny that has brought us to this point. But my people have been here and survived every one of those incidents, and here I remain strong and unbroken. Vox Booker is an activist. He's a member of Black Lives Matter. Thanks for being on Big Talk. Anytime. time.